हेलो वेलकम डॉक्टर सुषमा सिंह दिस साइड टुडे इन यूनिट थ्री विलेज स्टडीज़ इन इंडिया वी आर गोइंग टू स्टार्ट अवर लेक्चर विद टॉपिक फील्ड व्यू एंड द फील्ड वर्क मोर देन एनीथिंग एल्स इट वाज द मेथड ऑफ पार्टिसिपेंट ऑब्जर्वेशन दैट डिस्टिंग्विस्ड द सोशल एंथ्रोपोलॉजिकल विलेज स्टडीज फ्रॉम द रूलर सर्विस दैट वर कंडक्टेड बाई इकनोमिस्ट एंड डेमोग्राफर्स and it was this method of qualitative field work that helped social anthropology gain a measure of respectability in the indian academy the field view was the superior way of understanding contemporary indian society as it provided a corrective to the partial book view of the indian constructed by indologists from the classical hindu text The book view was partial not only because it was based on text written in the ancient time it was partial also because the text used in the indologist were all written by the elite upper caste hindus in contrast the anthropological perspective which used a scientific method of inquiry and provided a holistic picture of the ways social life was organized in the indian society at the level of its grassroots even though some of the scholars were themselves not india and therefore had preconceived notions about the ruler society a proper scientific training could take care of such biases However despite this self image of the scientist and the repeated emphasis on the value neutrality towards the subjects being studied a close reading of what these students of the indian village have written about their experiences of field work provides a completely different picture apart from pointing to the kinds of problems they faced in getting information about the village social life from different sections of the ruler society they give vivid descriptions of how their own location and social background influenced and conditioned their observations of the village society and their access to different sections of the people in the ruler society the place they chose to live in the village during their field work the friends they made for regular information the social class they themselves came from their gender the caste status bestowed upon them by the village all played important roles in the kind of data they could access the manner in which an individual anthropologist negotiated his or her relationship with the village determined who was going to be his or her informant one of the first question asked of the visitor was regarding his or her caste accordingly the village placed the visitor in its own structure and allocated him or her a place and status The anthropologist was not only the expected to respect this allocation of status bestowed on him or her by the village but he was also asked to conform to the normative pattern of the caste society 
The anthropologist could not avoid negotiating with the village social structure mainly because the method of participant observation required that he or she went and stayed in the village personally for a fairly long time of long period of time. The routine way of developing contact with the village was through the village leaders or the head of the panchayat who invariably came from the dominant upper caste. Most of the anthropologists themselves being from the upper caste and middle class background, it was easier for them to approach the de and develop rapport with these leaders. This also helped them to ex execute their studies with lesser difficulties. Mazumdar is explicit about this. The ex-Jamindar family provided accommodation and occasionally acted as a host and this contact helped to work with understanding and confidence. Little effort was needed to establish rapport. However, finding a place to live with not merely a matter of convenience, it identified the investigators with certain groups in the village and this identification had its advantages as well as disadvantages. While it gave them access to the life ways of the upper caste, it also made them suspect in the eyes of the lower caste. Batley, for example, was permitted to live in a Brahman house in the agrahagram, a privileged he was told, never extended to an outsider and known Brahmin before. His acceptance in the agrahagram as a co-resident was not without any condition. I could live in the agrahagram only on certain terms by accepting some of the duties and obligations of the members of the community. The villagers of the Siripuram had also assigned me a role and they would consider it most unnatural if I decided suddenly to act in ways that were quite contrary to what was expected. Living in Agrahagram also gave him an identity of a Brahmin in the village. I was identified by, with Brahmins by my dress, my appearance and the fact that I lived in one of their houses. For the non-Brahmins and Adi Dravidas, we, he was just another Brahman from North India. This meant that his access to these groups was therefore far more limited than to the Brahmins. His visits to Harijan locality received loud disapproval from his Brahman host and he was also suspected by the Harijans who regarded a visit to their homes by a Brahmin as unnatural and some believe that it brings them ill luck. The village was not only caste conscious, it was also class and gender conscious. As Batley writes, if I ask the tenant questions about the tenancy in the presence of the landlord, he did not always feel free to speak frankly. If I arranged to meet the tenant separately to ask these questions, the landlord felt suspicious and displeased. 
Underlining the role of gender played in fieldwork, Leela Dubey, one of the few Indian women anthropologists who worked in the village, writes, I was a Brahman and a woman, and this the village people could never forget. Shirinivas tells us a similar story about his experiences in the field. Since his family originally came from the region where he did his field study, it was easier for his villagers to place him. For the villagers, he was primarily a Brahmin whose joint family owned land in the neighboring village. The older villagers gave him the role of a Brahman and a landowner. By so doing, they were able to make him believe towards them in certain predictable ways. And they in turn were able to regulate their behavior towards him. More significant here perhaps is the fact that he very consciously confirmed to the normative pattern and the local values as he came to understand them. It did not even occur to me to do anything which might get me into trouble with the village establishment. I accepted the limitations and tried to work within them. A similar kind of anxiety is expressed by Leela Dobe when she writes, If I had to gain a measure of acceptance in the community, I must follow the norms of behavior with the people associated with my sex, age and caste. This confirmist attitude towards the village social structure and its normative pattern as received through the dominant sections had such an important effect on their fieldwork that some of them quite consciously choose not to spend much time with the low caste groups. Srinivas, for example, admits that while he was collecting genealogies and a household census, he deliberately excluded the Harijan word. He thought that he should approach the Harijan only through the headman. The consequence was that his accounts of village were biased in favor of the upper caste Hindu. It was not merely the insider Indian scholars who, while doing participant observation, had to negotiate with the social structure of the village. Even the scholars from the West had to come to term with the statuses that the village gave them and which caste groups they would get more closely identified with. The British scholar Andris Mayer, who studied as central Indian villages, writes that it was impossible for him merely to observe the caste system. He had to participate in it merely by the fact of my living in Ramkheri. He was accorded the status of an undesigned upper class and by the time he left the village he was mostly closely identified with Rajputs, the locally dominant caste. Though the village social structure invariably imposed itself upon the participant observation, it was not completely impossible to work without being identified with one of the dominant castes. There were some who made concerned efforts to understand what the caste system mean, meant to those who were at 
its receiving end. It is not surprising that the image of the hierarchy as it appeared from the bottom up was very different from its mainstream constructions. Mencher who choose deliberately to spend more time among the Harijan writes. Most of the Harijans I got to know tended to describe their relation with higher caste people in terms of power, both economic in terms of who's employed whom or their dependence on the landed of employment and the political in terms of authority and ability to punish. For Harijans, both old and young, the exploitative aspect of hierarchy was what seemed most relevant not the to each his own aspect. To them it was all quite clearly a system in which some people worked harder than the other, and in which those who were rich and powerful remained so, and obviously had no intention of delinquishing their progressive voluntarily. However, apart from a few exceptions of those doing agrarian studies, it was only later when the Dalit movement consolidated itself in different parts of the country that social anthropologists and sociologists began to examine the question of power and politics of caste relation. Here we want to close this lecture. Thanks for listening.